Okay. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Six Sad World. I'm Jasmine. And I'm Mari. Uh, so today, we have a little treat for you guys, um, and hopefully not the last of its kind. Uh, we have a guest on this app, so not only do you get to hear our cool voices, but also Mari's friend's voice. Um, they're going to both be covering a case for this episode, and Mari's going to introduce their friend. Yeah. So, uh, to help us tackle um, some very difficult issues mm-hmm. uh, this episode, we have Andrew Gerza, disability awareness consultant, cripple content creator, and queer cripple, and my friend. Um, so, thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be on this show. It's one of its kind, this show, so I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. Aww, thank you. So nice. <laughs> Um, so you also have a podcast called Disability After Dark, which I have been on. Um, it was a good time. So can you, it was amazing times. Um, can you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, it's a, it's a a sexuality and disability podcast. So once a week I do an episode either by myself or with a guest just talking about sexuality and disability in really broad terms. And then if I get people writing me in letters, I'll read letters from my, from the mailbox of listeners who have questions about disability, have stories they want to share um, in a little Minnesota that I do once a week. And it's really one of the only podcasts out there of its kind right now um, tackling sexuality and disability once a week. Usually when when bigger podcasts that do sexuality tackle disability, they have a one-off show about it. But my show is predominantly about sex every week. Oh, cool, cool. (laughs) That's... Awesome. Yeah. It's definitely a topic that's not covered enough. And uh, the, the podcast is really great. Um, as I said, I have been on it. And um, Andrew covers so many different topics. Mm. Um, we talked about, uh, you know, I'm non-binary, yeah. um, a person of color. Mm. And we talked about all those lovely intersections. And uh, Andrew covers so much more than that. Um, so... It was. Um, can you? T- it was. Uh, <laughs> it was great to have you on. And if you want to come back, I'm always looking for repeat guests. So let me know. Definitely, I'm going to take you up on that. Um, so, what about your other work? What is a disability awareness consultant? Well, I think I stole the term disability awareness consultant when I was coming up with it from other people who were using it. Usually, when we use that term, we talk about people who only focus on accessibility. And I wanted to look at awareness from an emotional standpoint, from a lived experience standpoint. So when I use the word disability awareness consultant, I mean, I want to make you aware of how disability feels. And my job is to to show you how disability feels on an emotional level. Um, I'm moving away from that, and I'm I'm moving more into the term critical content creator more because I really like the fact that my disability allows for me to uh, to have my hand in all different types of things, like a podcast, like um, being a speaker, being a writer. It allows me to do all this different stuff that isn't just one thing. So that's why I like Cripple Content Creator, because I'm creating stuff that is specifically for the disabled community from a lived experience mm-hmm. model, which I think is really, really powerful. Um, but really, when I created Disability Awareness Consultant, 
I created that terminology because I wanted it to be something that wasn't, that didn't denote that I was quote unquote an activist. Because I feel like sometimes when we use the word activist, we immediately think angry disabled person, which it's true. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty angry all the time about lots of stuff, but it's hard <laughs> to connect with somebody and have a conversation when you say, oh, I'm an activist and I do this. Because they're, especially when we're talking about being in a marginalized community, if you say like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a person of color who's also an activist, people who are not from that group automatically assume you are outwardly visibly angry all the time and so mm-hmm. my intent yeah. Is, yeah, yeah right <laughs> you know you know um my intent oh, my do. intent with that language was to kind of soften that blow a little bit and still be an mm-hmm. activist but do it in like a really a really like undercover like i'm an activist but yeah let's have a conversation we're not i'm not an activist let's do it from oh. a stealth kind of way you just try to make it more palatable for everyone yeah, else. Yeah, and also just, just so that I can actually get my foot in the door and start having the real conversations. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, and so tell us, why do you love true crime? That's a, that's a, that's a loaded question. I have been in love with true crime, <laughs> I think, for the longest time. When I was a kid, I used to watch um, Rescue 911 and, and Unsolved Mysteries like it was my job. Um, <laughs> and I didn't realize it at the time, but I just fell in love with it. And then when I started finding podcasts that focused on that, like I, it was over. I was like, all right, this is my thing. Cause I was really, I'm really into shows like my favorite murder and shows like, um, what the, the wine and crime podcast, which is one of my, yeah, I recently started listening to them as well. And so, so but they're it's literally my favorite show on the air right now, that one. And then, um, and that's why we drink. I just like how we can talk about, like, I don't know, murder and death in such a weird, like, weird, comfortable. Like, I like people who are comfortable with, with I think, things that are a little bit icky because for so many of us, disability tends to be an icky subject. So, like, mm-hmm. and I'm able to talk about it with such ease and with such comfort. The, the idea of someone being, like, murdered doesn't scare me. It just is like, oh, yeah, that's a part of life because... It just is what it is, and I just like the, I like when people can talk about morbid things and it with a with a morbid curiosity, but also do it mm-hmm. kind of respectfully. And what I love about this podcast is it's so your podcast is it's so intersectional and so like I've listened to not everything, but I've listened to a few episodes because when I heard you were doing it, I was like I have to support this because this is amazing. So I started listening, and I was, it's so intersectional and it goes in so many different ways. And it's something that we don't hear a lot of. So I'm really, really excited for you. I'm proud that it's there. Aw, um, thank you so much. Yeah, like, thanks. <laughs> We're, like, all, like, grinning and, like, oh. Like, wriggling in our seats. We're, like, oh, my gosh, all these compliments. Oh, don't yes. Don't know what to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. So um, why don't we get into um, the case that you researched for us um, before we start? Um, do you have any content warnings oh, yeah. that you might want to give before yeah, we get going? Thanks for that. I was I almost forgot about that. Very important content warnings: uh, death, disability, murder, mm-hmm. um, yeah, shitty court systems, uh, oh, pardons. Yeah. Uh, the government, ableism, all those things. Okay. 
Awesome. So feel free to jump jump right in sure, when you're ready. I'm pretty much I'm going like, to I'm going to read it pretty much directly from Wikipedia and then interject like my own <laughs> thoughts into it. Uh, so basically I'm doing okay. the, the case of Tracy Latimer and this was a really mm-hmm. big case about 25 years ago when I was about when I was like about 11 this happened. So this is the case of Tracy Latimer who was born on November 23rd, 1980. She ha- has cerebral palsy. She had really severe yeah. CP. So she had um According to Wikipedia, she had severe mental and physical disabilities, including violent seizures. Um, She had no voluntary control of her muscles, wore diapers, and could not walk or talk. Her doctors described the care given by her family as excellent, which is ironic, given what I'm about to tell you. Uh, (laughs) So, so, uh, I'm just going to scroll down to what happened. So, basically, on October 24th, 1993, Laura Latimer found Tracy dead. She had died under the care of her father while the rest of her family was at church. So sad. Mm -hmm. So, so sad. At first, Robert Latimer, her father, maintained that Tracy died in her sleep. However, when confronted by police with the autopsy evidence, the high levels of carbon monoxide that were found in Tracy's blood, Latimer confessed that he had killed her by placing her in his truck and connecting a hose from the truck's exhaust pipe to the cab. He also said he had considered oh. other methods of, methods of killing Tracy, including Valium, overdose, and oh, I never read this, and shooting her in the head. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh my wow. god. Yeah, Robert Latimer yeah. said his actions were motivated by, get ready, for Toxic Masculinity 101, were motivated by love and desire to end her pain. He described oh. the medical treatments Tracy had undergone and was scheduled to undergo as mutilation and torture, with the combination of a feeding tube, rods in her back, the leg cut and flopping around, and bed sores, how can people say she was a happy little girl? Um, so, he was charged with murder, first-degree murder. He was convicted of second-degree murder by a jury. Mm-hmm. Only second-degree. Yeah, yeah. second-degree means that he didn't have mens rea which means he didn't have according to the courts he didn't intend for her to die or didn't have a criminal mind and when he tried to kill her i think um yeah uh, which is totally i mean how do you how do you not have a criminal have criminal intent when you're like oh i could just give her some volume end her life or shoot her in the head like what (laughs) how do you to your own like yeah, like it's that's really messed up that it's it's being spun as like like saving her. Like he was he was Mercy. trying to save her, not he was trying yeah, to kill her. And I mean, her. I remember when it came out, I was only eleven and I remember when she passed, my mom and I talked about it. And at the time my mom, you know, trying to trying to figure out how to explain this to her kid, said, you know, maybe she wasn't maybe she was in pain like maybe maybe they maybe they were just going through hard, like trying to figure out how to explain why somebody would do this and because it was so close to us like because i am a I, like i have pretty much the save for the fact that i can talk and i have more mental faculties than she may have had 
we have the same level of, of mm-hmm. cerebral palsy. So my my level of cerebral palsy is severe as hers was. Um, mm-hmm. And she was, she had, she has rods in her spine. I have rods in my spine. She had hip reconstructions. I had hip reconstructions. Like we have a very similar trajectory in how we, how our CP manifests itself. Um, so, and reading this now as an adult, even looking at it now as I'm talking to you, it's like, oh, wow, we were so close to being, like, the same person in many respects with respect to disability. Uh, and it's just so mm-hmm. scary to think that somebody who claims to love their child with, with disabilities would do that. I mean, I think all yeah. forms of ableism are super wrong, but this form of ableism, like, like criminal fatal ableism is super wrong like wow i think there needs to be a whole other category of like ableism for this kind of stuff because (sighs) well it's a bit like eugenics in in that way it's like not seeing the value yeah in in lives because we deem them as as less than or or incomplete yeah I, i mean it's totally eugenics what i think is funny about not funny, but what I think is funny, like weird about these cases is that we don't ever, we will never use the word eugenics to describe what happened to when somebody with a disability is killed. We always say it's mercy or they had a tough life or we never say Mm -hmm. what it is and that's what it is. Um, And so this case just really, just really irks me because it's, the level of similarity between her and I is so close and like really close, close to home. home. And now as an adult who I I, ha- I live a happy life, I have, I live independently. Like, and I mean, yeah, the, in, in 1993 disability supports were probably vastly different than they are now, but had they just yeah powered through a little bit and realized that like she couldn't speak, Sure, but maybe we don't know. Maybe she had some cognitive functioning that nobody took the time to 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 work with her on. Like, but even if she didn't, she doesn't deserve to die because you couldn't deal with it. Like it just, mm-hmm. yeah. Like just because you can't speak doesn't mean that you can't communicate or you can't yeah. have a yeah. full life. Exactly. Um, and I mean, then the like recently the other like. Literally the other day, and the reason why I emailed you as soon as I saw to say, oh my God, I want to do this one, is because he, Robert Latimer, has asked for a pardon from the from the Prime Minister, which ultimately means yeah. he would not, the charges would be dropped, he'd be set free. I mean, he, he, he has a pretty cushy life, given what happened right now. He's in a, in a, he's in a halfway house, and uh, he went to a minimum minimum security prison at one point. Like he hasn't he hasn't really served the kind of time I think he should have done. Uh, and you know that No, because what he so did was malicious. malicious. And it was his own was, daughter. Like what it was selfish. It's just it's it was cruel. Downright cruel and downright unnecessary. And like if you couldn't take care of her, then either bring her to a family member who maybe could, tell the state you can't Maybe like I'm not saying foster care is great, and I'm not advocating for that, but I'm saying don't end her life because you can't mm-hmm. explain to the government that you maybe need more help, maybe you need more care, maybe you need. I mean, 
when I was growing up with my family, my parents made sure that I had that I had attendant care on top of their help so that they could have a break. Maybe all that Mr. Latimer needed at the time was a break, but it's really disturbing that instead of simply asking for help, you decided that the best option was to kill your kid. Mm -hmm. Like, why was that easy for him to do than try to get some assistance? Yeah, like... Like, it really sort of, (laughs) to me, it kind of tells me what kind of person he is. He was like, oh, I'm struggling to take care of my daughter, you know. Hmm, I have two options. Or it could have been more on the table, but let's say there's two options to end my daughter's life or to seek some sort of care. And he chose that was that was the best option. Like, that was... Yeah, like, he really thought that, like, oh, living with attendant care or yeah. living using... I don't know, maybe catheters or, you know, whatever medical supplies that she mm-hmm. needed, that was worse than death. Like, I can't, it's it's mind-boggling to me. And, like, yeah. I know for a lot of abled people, it, it doesn't seem that way, but, like, I just can't imagine thinking that being dead is better. Well, I mean, I can't, but. Well, it's also because she couldn't speak for herself, right? And he made that choice for for her. She had no say in it at all. There's, it's kind of different when someone is like, I'm suffering, I'm in pain. You know, this is hard for me. But she didn't have the opportunity to try to communicate to that if she wanted to. He just said, you know what? I'm making this decision. Yeah. Being alive is yeah, not and I mean, the option for you. But he also didn't give her a chance, right? To like, for it to get better. For it, like, in in the early years of, of caring for a, a disabled child, yeah. it is it is difficult because you have to learn completely new systems and, and, and how to find resources and all of these things. But it gets easier once you've, you've done those steps. Once you've put in that work at the beginning, it gets easier down the road as you develop your routines and your systems and it it totally Mm -hmm. does and what i found i'm reading the wikipedia right now what i'm finding kind of appalling is that in 1999 a poll found that 73 percent of canadians that's pretty much almost 100 percent of canadians believed that robert latimer acted out of compassion and should receive a more lenient sentence you know what i'm not surprised i'm really not yeah, it's not surprising. Yeah, no, I'm but not it's surprised upsetting. either. But it's yeah. just to see the to see over half of Canada, Canada, the whole country of Canada, believe that what he did was right is kind of gross. And we're supposed to be, yeah, and we're supposed to be kind. And yeah, that's sort of our like, thing. You know, like in our whole universal health care, and we, you know, all of that. Everyone we're kind. Talks. We apologize too much. Yeah. We're we're all this, you know. But we think that, like, killing your disabled kid is, like, compassionate. Yeah, like, most of us are like, yeah, you know what that yeah, makes and, sense. Yeah, and, like, it just is. So. And, then, and then 41% of people believe that mercy killing should be legal in that same poll. And, I mean, this was only, this was only oh, 20 God. years ago. This was only, this yeah. is not very long ago at all. So what's scary is how many more Canadians still believe that. <laughs> And, like, I wouldn't be surprised if the statistic yeah. was still the same. Yeah. Like, right now. I I, I would hope yeah, it I would have <laughs> dropped a little bit. But, you know, like, 
in reality, I don't see it actually because even with you know all of the progress we've made when it comes to disability like yeah it's this community's been really left yeah, behind completely. yeah i mean and to look at like i'm also just like somebody wrote an article in the globe and mail yesterday i just opened it up right now claiming that robert latimer does deserve the pardon and pretty much their reasoning is because is because uh how hard it is for them, how tough it was. Um, how tough yeah. must it have been for Tracy to have someone who cared so little about her to take care of her? Yeah. Like, that's such a... And a, imagine how what, scared what she I, was. What I think is so scary about all of that you know? and what scares me the most is that I know people who are nonverbal, who, can to- who totally communicate. Yeah. And we can have full-on conversations once... what The way I... The way I look at people who have speech impediments or different different accents, what I call them are accents of disability, because there are some people mm-hmm. with CP who who can speak like I do and have no quote unquote impediment, and then there are others who have you know very big impediments. But I call them accents because once you like train your ear to what they're saying, it's not really that hard to understand. So why it's disturbing to me is yeah. that. Maybe she was communicating to him through her eyes. Like, please, dad, don't do mm-hmm. this. Like, don't do this. Oh, but wait, you did it because you're a fucking asshole who doesn't, like, care about Like, <laughs> I can't imagine just knowing, like, I have the ability to speak and to, to, to vocalize what my needs are. But there are moments when I when I have to let people yeah. do things for me that I don't necessarily enjoy. I can't imagine the moment where she realized in her like young brain that this is the end now. Like I can't get out of like there there must have been a moment yeah. in her primal brain where her body was trying to fight to get out and she can't. Yeah. Instinctually and she knew that's just so troubling to me. I mean, to to move it into a totally different realm. The other night I had a I had what yeah. I could only say is a paranormal ghost experience <laughs> yeah when i thought you right like story, something gra- grabbed me in the night that was really <laughs> scary i don't know what it was i i woke up at 3 a.m after being shook by something and you know if you were able-bodied your normal response to this would be to run out of the bedroom and like go somewhere being that i was disabled and un- unable to mm-hmm. move my response was to lie in the bed and be like what do I do now? So, I mean, to move it, you know, it just, it's scary when something happens and you realize that you have no control over it. What I'm saying is Tracy probably had no control over this and she, there's nothing she could do. She, there's nothing she could do about it. And that's, that's just scary. And, and, you know, similar to my ghost story when that, mm-hmm. when that entity shook me the other day, which, and that's never happened before. And it was terrifying. Like you would not believe uh, I also had no control, and I had to just be like, okay, well, I guess I'm gonna stay in bed and not be and not think about that. And so, like, yeah, to know that she might like, have had like a brief moment of like, I, I want to get out of here, but I can't, is just so. As a disabled person yeah. who needs a lot of help myself, knowing that kind of fear of like and the helplessness of not being able to help yourself is really scary. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's definitely, like, I have, that's, like, what my nightmares are basically about, is just being someplace and not being able to to do anything about it, and or to escape, or, or to do anything really about it. And a lot of that stems from the fact that, my so my my love of horror movie also kind of, like, fuels this fear, <laughs> yeah. because it's, like, in most ho- slasher flicks and horror movies, when yeah. something bad happens... They run out of the room as fast yeah. as they can, and, like, whoever gets left behind gets killed, and that's it. Yeah, that's it. And it's, like, cool. So someone like me who <laughs> can run maybe three feet in front of me yeah. before, like, my knees give out, that's what what would happen to me. And it's something yeah. that, like, terrifies me, like, to this day. And it's well, actually, like, I want to write a horror movie. I was going to say um, that, like, you made a good point about horror movies in general. I know this is a little bit off topic, but how often do you come across disabled people in horror films who, like, aren't completely and totally incapable of being able to bat, like, ward off whatever is, like, they're always left in the dust. They're always left behind. It's like there's a sense of hopelessness if you can't or the, get or up the bad guy. Like, and maybe... run out. Like oh, maybe, right. Freddy Krueger just had a, maybe Freddy Krueger just oh, had yeah. a bad case That's of like true. eczema and nobody like and nobody would talk to him. Like, you know, they're always the, the bad guy. And, you know, I would love to see a horror film mm-hmm. where the, the disabled person was the protagonist who won. Yeah. Actually, I know that there is a disabled person in the new Annabelle movie. I haven't seen it yet because I don't watch them in theaters. <laughs> you don't watch anything in theaters. Uh, true, but horror movies definitely not because I like to cover myself with a blanket <laughs> while I watch them. And yeah, me too, um, me too. so I haven't watched the new Annabelle movie, but I did notice in the trailers that one of the young girls mm-hmm. is in a wheelchair. She's a wheelchair user. Oh, awesome! And was it so, was it like um, a proper chair? Was it like a like a chair that we would use today, or was it one of those ridiculous chairs that nobody in real, the real world would ever use? It was a very old chair, and like, like I'm a, not totally certain when this takes. I place. think the Annabelle movies kind of take place a little bit. Yeah, back. not necessarily. They're not present. They're like a couple of year, not a couple of years, maybe like a few decades, decades. Um, in yeah. the past. So they're like it's an older chair. Um, but it's a manual wheelchair, um, and it is one that she uses herself, I believe. It's like a, it's not a transport chair. It's it's an actual wheelchair. Okay. Um, but that's like all I could really tell from the commercials was just that it was a manual one. Yeah, I don't know if this is worth mentioning, but The Quiet Place had. Um, I am so excited to see that film. I can't... I watched that film. I saw that film. It was it was good, and it was nice. The the, the younger I don't remember the the actress's name but she had taught the rest of the cast past who played her family mm. sign language yes because the whole movie is almost exclusively conducted in sign language yeah was that marley marley something she's also in quantico i think and she plays a deaf fbi agent um and she communicates with sign language but also with lip reading this young girl Oh no no not the young girl. It's it's in oh, okay. in the quiet place. She's like this girl's like maybe. I remember hearing about somebody. 13. Yes, as she's well, a, I, another I, actress. Yes, as well. but like yeah, in in Quantico, um, there's a deaf FBI agent in the new season. Amazing. Um, yeah, and so she communicates um, through ASL um, as well as mm-hmm. um, through lip reading. And there was a scene actually that I loved so much um, where they're having. 
um, this like group meeting and everyone um, starts like arguing with each other and they start turning away from her and talking over each other and she can't keep Keep up. Yeah. And um, she like yells at everyone to like stop and, and she explains like, you can't cover your mouth. You can't turn away from me. Like I can't understand you if you're not, you know, doing these basic things for me. Yeah. So it just goes to show that not only do we need to be able to make communication more accessible for the people, but also take everyone else and make them aware that it's also our job as I am an able-bodied person, our job to be able to try our best to, you know, learn methods or become familiar with methods of alternate communication, you know, mm-hmm. with, so like we can communicate with other people. Yeah, like all accessibility sorts of is on yes. everyone. It's not yeah, just... totally. Um, yeah. Um, but he uh, clearly did not. So... <laughs> I don't know. So like, so basically, Robert Latimer. The the end to this case is, Robert Latimer is an asshole. Um, yeah. He should not be pardoned. And if Justin Trudeau, just by chance, listens to this podcast, um, please don't do it. And if you do, it's gross. Uh, Tweet at Justin Trudeau not, not to do that. Yeah. Do not pardon Robert Latimer. Make him, like, ask for a harder sentence, honestly. Part of me feels like, in terms of this situation, you know, part of me thinks, like, yeah, maybe he's a really good guy and he will do it of his own volition. He'll do it because he really wants to. Part of me feels like he hasn't been doing so hot lately and he'll do it anyway. And other part, part of me will be like, oh, he'll just, he'll just fuck up again. Yeah, That's kind of the I mean, I have, I have my trepidations about... Trudeau, I've had them for a long time. I just think mm-hmm. my honest view about that political figure is that he's a camera whore. He likes to take pictures and be <laughs> the guy in front looking pretty, which is like all well and good. But yeah. do something with the power you have to make real change. And mm-hmm. he's not doing that. So like maybe now that Ford is the premier of Ontario, he'll take his Trudeau will take his job seriously and like start putting some of the things in place to get Ford out. Like like Well it's about time or he won't get back in the house. Good job. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He definitely has to stop thinking about the publicity and just actually like follow through on the same things that he says he was gonna do. He started off kinda good and then he just kind of stopped doing anything. To be quite no, honest. see I never he I never he got thought real bad real I never bad. thought he was starting off yeah. good. I thought the like he Sorry, like the on. communities who, who thought he was doing good were, to be quite honest mm. with you, white, able-bodied, thirsty, gay men were like, oh my god, Trudeau's the greatest, yeah! <laughs> but I was always like, no, no, there's something shady about this guy. I don't know, I just feel like he was like a step up from what... Because we had Harper, and we had, then we had... this. Well, like, this, this was pre-Trump... Pre yes. for yes, we thought you know. I was like, this like Trudeau was this like shiny, and I mean like I'm like he wasn't Harper, he was still a liberal <laughs> yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah, but like, yeah. So, so I mean, like he started off good as he wasn't Harper because Harper scared the crap out of me. Um, he seemed to at least pretend that he cared about issues that were important to me, but like. Obviously, it did not last very long. 
No, he went back on a lot of promises, especially to indigenous people. Yes, that's where he... That was one of his biggest campaign things, too. That's why a lot of people were like, yes, Trudeau, and then nothing came Well, I mean, I always find it problematic when he was at that summit with the indigenous people and he put on the the headdress and I was like, oh, wow. Like, I don't... Well, he does that with every culture. Every culture he goes to, he dresses in their... Their tradition, like what what he thinks, thinks is their, their traditional, traditional, whatever, and it's like I, so I uncomfortable. Like he did it. He wore an Indian outfit. Yeah, when he went to India, but say when he went to India, everyone was like, "Uh." I was like, "What are you yeah, doing? Yeah, like don't do that. Stop. Like no." And so this is why, like, his inability to have a hard stance on things is why I think he might be like, "Okay, Robert Latimer, like, all right, here's your pardon because I don't know how to feel about this. So bye." Like, but. What Robert Latimer did to his daughter, to his daughter, to his daughter, mm-hmm. is like yes. unforgivable, in my view. As a as a as a disabled person, as somebody who that could have like my family was totally different and everything was good there. But I'm saying any of us who who are that severely disabled could be under the care of somebody mm-hmm. who's able bodied who decided that you could just die. So why I think it's so disturbing is that we we really do, this case proves that we really do think that disabled people are less than mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well we they like we are i think a lot of people who think that this was compassionate assume that tracy didn't have any form of consciousness or personality yeah they probably thought she was there's like nothing going on inside her head at all like yeah like you literally have to view her as as inhuman as an, an empty object shell. like less than an animal yeah because yeah. even animals you know if you you know you still with an animal if it's in pain or whatever it can't live you take it to the vet and let the vet make that decision yeah. and still a lot of people choose to pay very high vet bills to, to in order to not put their animals yeah. down. treat their pet, rehabilitate it, do whatever and they I mean, can. They put the, they put their their pets on on like Facebook and Twitter. And be like, oh my god, this is my. And then, you know, when their when their pet dies, they spend pages and pages of social media time telling us how beautiful their animal was, how much they loved it, how it was a part of the family. Now, this was obviously in a different time before social media, but like, yes. but like. He had no remorse. He didn't feel bad about what he did. There was no... I've never heard him... And he there's wasn't... nobody even reacting to it that's like, her beautiful life was taken. Her, You know, it was just like, oh, him. she was disabled. Oh, she was a burden. Oh, this. Oh, that. He really just, like, messed everything up. He... He was selfish and he didn't think... He said he was doing it as a mercy, as for his daughter, but he was just doing it for himself because she couldn't take care of herself. So it was just all about him. And like the whole thing about being a parent or a big chunk of being a part of a parent is selflessness. My mother went back to high school in her like early 30s to get an education so she could help to take care of my sister, my older sister, not my, anyway, but it's irrelevant. Parents do a lot of things and they quote unquote give up a lot of things for their yeah. children and he just kind of was like i can't take this anymore so she's got to and go i mean the truth of all that is when you have a disabled kid things are quote unquote harder they just are it just is 
what it is. Yeah. And there's no getting around that. And that's not, I don't believe that's an ableist statement. I believe just that's the truth. Things are different and they're harder and you have to, like, there were, I was raised around the same time as she was. And things were tough, really tough. And there were moments where, like, my family had to do a lot of stuff they didn't want to do. And, and like, we, my family and I went to Australia recently together. And there was stuff that my family had to consider doing they didn't want to do. But we did it and it was Mm -hmm. fun and we had a good time. Like, I can't imagine, you know, not doing stuff like that and having my family be like, well, we decided that when you turn 13, you're going to die. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I, yeah. it's just sad. It's so sad. So, I mean, that's my case. Um, he's currently up for, (laughs) he's, he's looking for a pardon right now from the government. And I would urge anyone listening in politics or, Anyone who knows anybody in politics or anybody who just do whatever you can to make sure this guy doesn't get a part of it, please. Mm-hmm. It's a good message to put out there. One of us should write an op-ed. Um, um, so we should all write it together. We should all write it, do it together. Yes. I don't know what an op-ed is. Uh, I didn't want to say anything. editorial. But... <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, hmm, yes, nodding. I know what that is. It's all I know good. what that is. Yeah. It... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's just an opinion piece that gets published by, um, by, by, by a publication. Yeah, I was like, all right. So now you just get to share. Uh, actually, I want to thank you first of all for sharing your case. Yeah, thank you so much. That was really important. I'm glad you brought up something that you know is so relevant now. Yeah, and um, you know, actually gave us something that we can actively do about it. Are you fascinated by mysterious legends, the paranormal, or UFOs? Do stories of murder, missing persons, and con men send you down internet rabbit holes? Did you grow up watching the TV show Unsolved Mysteries? Does Robert Stack's voice haunt your nightmares? Then our podcast is for you. I'm Liz. And I'm Samantha. Join us every Wednesday as we discuss the original Robert Stack episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. Follow along with us on Amazon Prime or just tune in for our weekly podcast. We are on iTunes, Google Play, and social media at Perhaps it's you. And now, on Tamari's case. Are you ready? Yes. All right. I'm so excited. All right. I will start off with some content warnings. Um, So this case is going to be about familicide, which is the murder of families. Yeah. Um, So mass murder um, and obviously ableism and some sanism as well, because what's a true crime case without some sanism? Mm Mm-hmm. So I I wrote out like a script for mine, so it's going to be a bit more structured. <laughs> so I hope it's not too boring. <laughs> On the morning of July 6, 2000, Willem and Mirka Luft uh, entered their semi-detached home from their motor home where they were staying while trying to help support their son, Bill, and his family. Inside, they found the body of Bo... Oh my goodness, I did not look up the pronunciation of this name. Bohumila. Oh, the Bohumila Luft. Um, Willem Luft uh, went to call the police while Mirka went to check on the children upstairs. Um, Bohumila had recently had a C-section done, so they had assumed that she had fallen down the stairs and opened her incisions. Um, So uh, Mirka Luft went upstairs to find the children to kind of hide them from it. 
Instead, she found the bodies of Bill and his children, three-month-old David, five-year-old Nicole, two-year-old Peter, and seven-year-old Daniel. So, what happened? Yeah. Sometime the night before, Bill Luft entered the bedroom that he that his wife shared with their infant child, David, with a kitchen knife. Bill proceeded to... Oh, so it's going to get a little bit graphic at this oh, point. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to get into a bit of the details about the murder. Um, so if you're squeamish, you might want to skip ahead like a minute or two. Probably two. Yeah, just to be safe. Um, so... Bill proceeded to hit Bohemila in the face with a saucepan that he had, that they had in the bedroom for some reason. They had a saucepan in the bedroom? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know this is like a really serious, like, I, I'm not kidding. I know this is very serious, but also like for me, it's like either it's like a cultural thing or just like a weird thing that they did where they had. But yeah. as soon as you said saucepan, I started laughing. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, it's so ridiculous. And I actually, I found this in the trial notes because yeah. I actually found the trial documents that like went through the jury's like determination. I'm just like, why, why is it in the, okay, whatever. It's. Yeah, I'm not totally sure. It so was many probably questions. like, <laughs> like a hot plate or something where they probably made the baby's milk, maybe like warm Ma- the baby's Maybe. Milk. Okay. That makes more sense sense i um, guess then and what year was this again 2000 okay <laughs> um and actually the the anniversary of this just passed recently um so it was the 18th anniversary this month um so he hit her in the face with the saucepan um and then stabbed her in the abdomen while she was holding baby david in the oh. abdomen so baby david also got cut um, in the the leg, um, Bohemila made it down the stairs, um, but that's where she collapsed and died because of all the blood loss. Um, so the kind of sequence of events aren't totally sure because you know there's no witnesses and um, so they can't tell exactly in what order it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but Nicole, who was the five year old, was shot in the chest in the hallway from the doorway of Bohemila's bedroom. So presumably she was checking out what was happening. Mm-hmm. And Daniel was shot in the head and chest in his bed in the room he shared with Nicole. Peter, who was two, was also shot in the head and chest in his own bed. Bill then went to his own bedroom and shot himself under the chin, but he didn't die right away, so he had to shoot himself in the chest. Oh my gosh. So, why did it happen? So, this is kind of the major part of, yeah. of my case. So, the media, the jury, and his neighbors have all speculated as to why Bill would do such a horrible thing. Um, I don't think I found a single article that didn't reference Bill Luce's bipolar disorder. Yeah. Um, and his inconsistency with taking meds. However, according to the record, um, which I think is a kitchen... Oh! Did I mention this happened in Kitchener? Yeah, you didn't mention that. Whoa, super close. Yeah, this happened in Kitchener. So for our listeners who don't know, um, Kitchener is kind of just a few hours, like a three hours drive west of Toronto. Yeah. Um, So it's super close um, by Canadian standards. (laughs) Yeah, by by Canadian standards. (laughs) Um, 
And so this is, yeah. And so this happened in 2000 when I would have been I'm so much younger than you. It's, I feel embarrassed now mentioning my age. <laughs> but I would have been um, seven, I think. I would be turning seven. When did this happen? 2000? Mm-hmm. Yeah, seven. Yeah. That makes me feel super old. <laughs> no, you're all like like an adult, a regular adult age. Like We're an still adult. in this like weird, like baby, like adult infancy, like. I want to go. I want to go back to that. So I want to go back to that so hard. Can I go back to that adult infancy stage, please? So much. Uh, if only. If only. If only. Um. Right. So yeah, this happened. Um. In Kitchener. So according to the record, which is um a newspaper, I think in Kitchener. Um. His sister Ronnie Shedler says, and this is something I completely agree with. Um. So she said in, is this quotes? No, it's not. <laughs> I'm like, is it? The quote is lower down. So he's. Uh, so she said that his diagnosis isn't the reason these murders happen. Um, Shedler also said that after the murders, she had to leave a bipolar support group. And I think this was like a support group for like families of people diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Because there were mothers in that group who... Um, were saying that they were turning their backs on their children because they had bipolar diagnoses. Um, she went on to say, I guarantee you one thing. It's when they get shunned from society and tossed by their family and everything else and they have nowhere to turn, that's when they turn to drugs and alcohol and that's when they become violent. Uh... A few articles also cite the various stresses that Bill Luft was under. Um, and so this is where things get interesting. And I think um, these excuses have a lot more to do with um, why Bill Luft made his decision than his mental illness. Yeah. Uh, so Bill Luft was unemployed and in growing debt. He owed $17,000 to creditors, but he also owed $45,000 to his father in loans. And, like, from what I know about the case, being unemployed made him very, very upset. It was, like, the worst thing that could basically happen to them. Yeah, he, he was very upset about being unemployed. Um, he was... Um, this kind of, like, blue-collar worker. I think he was a machinist. Something like that. Um, who was working in one of the, like, Waterloo breweries, but then um, the business dried up and he lost his job. Um, he was also facing a lawsuit against the owner of a bed and breakfast where he used to rent and work. So he used to stay at this bed and breakfast um, for a reduced rate to work um, because he would also do work around the bed and breakfast. And then um, he would like, um, but then something happened between them in like 1998 where he, they were accusing each other of theft. I don't know. Some stuff went down. So uh, there was a lawsuit from that. He was also facing divorce. His wife, Bohemila, which I'm probably saying wrong, um, had left him once before. Every in time you say her name, I think Bohemian Rhapsody. Am I the only one? <laughs> no, I, the, honestly, I had not said her name out loud. I was like practicing it in my head all last night. And I was like, that makes sense. And then I said it out loud and I was like, that doesn't. You're like, that doesn't sound 
I don't think that's the, the right, right sound. We'll just call her Bohemia. It's fine. We we apologize if it's not the right pronunciation. As always, and almost every episode we've done so far, we've had come across a lot of names where the pronunciation has been a little iffy at best. Oh, yeah. Um, and yeah, this is like an Eastern European name. Like, she yeah. is from the Czech Republic. Yes. So... I'm really bad with Eastern European They're hard to names. say, you know? Um, so yeah, practice. his wife, uh, Bohumula, had left him once before in 1997 and actually returned to the Czech Republic where she remarried and conceived a child with another man. Um, Bill would um, claim that this man was a satanic worshiper <laughs> and that the only reason she divorced him was because this satanic man was like brainwashing her. I didn't know that part. Into, yeah, it was like he was accusing her, um, accusing them of doing like satanic rituals together. Um, and so he ended up like getting custody of the kids or something. Oh, um, wow. Oh, wow. Okay. But they ended up, okay. yes, um, but they ended up reconciling. Like a year later, um, like during while she was still pregnant um, and she returned to Canada and um, they had the child, Peter, who um, was raised as, you know, thinking he was Bill Luff's child. Yeah. Um, do, do, do. Where am I? Uh, this time she was leaving Bill because he refused to send his children to public school. He was very religious, and he didn't want his children to be influenced by the modern world. And I think this says a lot more about why mm-hmm. he went to murder. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Than oh, yeah. his mental illness. Yeah. Like, his, that, I feel like, has, you know, like, okay, yes, he dealt with depression. He dealt with mania. Yes. He, you know, sometimes used medication, sometimes didn't. But the whole controlling it's, his yeah, children's education. It sounds like the whole fundamental core of his personality was already kind of skewed and problematic to begin with. Yeah. And, oh, something I didn't mention was the age difference between yeah. him and Bohemula. So at um, in 2000, Bohemula was 27 and he was 42. So there was a huge age oh, difference yeah. between so them when they got married. There's a whole element to why he murdered her. Murdered them because she was younger. She was not as smart as he was. He was. Like, I feel like there's. I feel like just based on that control on that description, there's a whole bunch of like ageism happening. Yeah, I feel like it. You like ageism and also just misogyny and just general. Um, and I almost always feel like really old guys are like almost grooming their younger partners. So, like, whenever I hear there's a big age gap, like, my first thought is to be, a, like, a little on edge, a little, like, wary, a little skeptical, because it's, like, you know. Because mm-hmm. they would have met when she was about 19, 20 years old. Yeah. And that's really messed up, because when I think back to 1920, and that's only a few years for me. Yeah. But I know for a lot of people, 1920 is the year, like, those years where you make a lot of mistakes in relationships, and that's when you you find the red flags to, to look for in future yep. relationships. So if you have an older person who already knows how to look for red flags, what kind of red flags that you might be giving off to other people. Yeah. And, you know, like you have all of this experience behind you. 
you are in a position to be controlling and and you know just manipulative yep um yeah so i think that probably has a much bigger bearing on this crime um he was also facing a housing crisis um so at the time he was living in his parents home um because uh they were they went on an extended vacation to europe that's how it was described um so i don't extended know vacation if his parents to europe sounds were like he also killed them like when you said extended- no 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 they were <laughs> They were, they were, um, but they were moving back, and that's why they were living in the motorhome in the driveway. Because um, if I was going to kill so, somebody, I would say, "Oh, so and so just took an extended vacation to this place, and I don't know when they'll be returning." It's Bye. true. I- <laughs> but he, he definitely could have. Like, it would have worked because they were gone for like months and months. Like, they were gone for most of like ninety nine into two thousand. Um, but they had returned and were, like, living in a motorhome in his driveway. Well, their driveway, because they own the home. Yeah. Um, but they had also had arranged to sell their home to his younger brother. And that would mean that the that his family would have to move out. And I think that there might also have been some, like, drama going on between him and his siblings. I wouldn't be surprised. Because um, apparently when they first moved in, they were also living with his nephew. Mm-hmm. Um, but then something happened and his nephew, they evicted his nephew, um, which is like kind of weird to me because in like my family, it's like, uh, an aunt and uncle is where you send a child who has been like so bad that you like, you're like, somebody else is going to deal with yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so like, um, he like, he was also, so he was unemployed in debt and now was going to have to look for a new home. Yeah. Um, so this last thing that I'm going to mention is kind of the biggest point, um, in this for me and the, the part that hits closest to home. And this is the part that the media kind of just like skims over because it just seems like so acceptable to them that it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense that that would stress him out so much to murder. Yeah. Um, and that was that, um, his, the infant son, David. Was diagnosed with spina bifida. Uh. Specifically, myelomeningocele spina bifida, which is the exact same spina bifida I have. Yeah. So, this was... And so, um, for those who may not know what that is, um, uh, this type of spina bifida is caused by... um, I don't know if this is the right word for it, um, but it's kind of the word I always heard growing up um, by like a deformity on the spine mm-hmm. um, that causes the nerves to kind of not go everywhere they're supposed to. And so you end up with partial paralysis. Um, so like for the most part, for me, my disability has affected my life like a ton. Yeah, especially in but, the recent years. Yeah, but you know... Throughout my life, I still did a lot of things and, like, had dreams and I've, you know, been working towards them. And there's been a lot of things I didn't think were possible for me as a kid that, you know, I'm starting to realize are completely possible now. Yeah. And it's just, like, super, super upsetting. And I know that this disability played a huge factor in Bill's decision making because when Bohemula was 
pregnant with David. Uh, prenatal tests predicted that the nervous system wouldn't develop typically. So, but Bill claimed that um, he talked to the fetus <laughs> while it was still in the uterus <laughs> and that the fetus told him that it was good. It told him that he was, there was nothing wrong with him and he was fine and like everybody yep, should okay, leave him alone. Sure, I'm, all right. Um, and so then he works. refused to talk about any kind of medical, um, any, like any kind of medical processes and like the things to expect, um, during the actual childbirth and, you know, afterwards grow, um, like with the child. First of all, I just want to say, you can't even talk a baby out of crying. How can you talk a baby out of yeah, not like being what? born the way it's born? All right. Like, like, like. I don't, I don't, I don't, I, it's, it's a little ridiculous. And a little bit, a lot of why the newspapers were all like, it was his mental illness because they were like, oh, he would have like, um, he was admitted into psychiatry and blah, blah, blah. But I don't think so because he went and sought help for a lot of that stuff. Like when, like that sounds like something something his lawyer was like. Tell the court that you talked to the fetus and the fetus told you this. Like, to try to find a way out of a, to get a lighter sentence or to get, like, not criminally responsible based on mental well, illness. Like, it, doesn't, it just doesn't sound plausible that you would actually... I mean, it's, it's possible that he did suffer from hallucinations. Yeah, but I liken it to something as someone who's extremely religious in a sense where they can pray your illness away you know mm-hmm. i prayed for you and it's got, like like i liken it to something like that like there is a, a chance that yes there was part of part of his mental illness but there's also a good chance that he just thought he had the power to or he actually did believe that you know if we just wait it out you know everything will be fine i've had people okay. i've had people try to pray my disability away that's that was weird and fun i never quite know how to feel about it when it's happening um yeah my grandmother was religious, um, and so my entire childhood growing up, my grandmother, every time I saw her, would tell her how much she's praying for me every day, specifically for me, because I was the disabled grandchild. Mm-hmm. Everybody else was normal, quote-unquote. Yeah. Um, so, like, every time I saw her, she'd be like, I pray for you. And I'm like, pray for what? Like, what is going to happen? Like, I was born, like, nothing can change now. That's how spina bifida works. It doesn't just, like, disappear. And just go, oh, you know what? I don't want to be here anymore. I'm just going to, like, dip. You good? Like, it doesn't do that. That actually reminds me of what? Um, so the other day, I was walking to the subway station, mm-hmm. and I um, I was walking with my cane, and I was wearing um, one of those, like, compression things on my knee because I was dealing with a lot of swelling from yeah. the humidity. And I walked up to the elevator at the station, and there's this middle-aged white lady there and she looks at me and she looks away and then she looks back and she goes she points at my knee and goes what happened and i'm like i have spina bifida because i thought like spina bifida like it's a relatively common disability it's one of those ones that you hear and you know like oh that's one of those like congenital disabilities well the thing is though i think you'd be surprised by how many people haven't heard of i feel like sorry i feel like a lot of people 
actually like they probably would know it once you explain it but like, oh that's what it's called but yeah. like yeah but no there's definitely a ton of people who don't know what it is yeah. but then she like turned to me and was like so like is that an ongoing thing <laughs> like and i was like yes it doesn't go <laughs> it's my spine like, it's con- like yeah, i know like it's constant like what yeah yeah mm-hmm, yeah right it's not like a cold you can catch and then like suddenly yeah. one day my spina bifida will just teal <laughs> right on up and you know it's spina bifida season you know it's gonna be careful spina your spina bifida like, like shot spina like it's not one season, of those things SB season, yes. like it's not it's not one it's it's not the whole <laughs> yeah and it's just it's i guess i'm so used to you know because i was born disabled so i was i spent a lot of time yeah. in you know medical environments and so i'm just so used to everybody being like there's a spot of bifida and yeah. we already know more than you the person living it yeah <laughs> that like when i actually meet people who are like i don't understand like you're just like that like what like, do you mean <laughs> like yes is this confusing for you like i will be this way forever it's- it scares people because they don't know yeah, how it's, to it's, like. It's, they don't know how to deal with the fact that you're okay with the fact that you're disabled. Mm-hmm. And it's especially because I'm so young and I look so young. Like when I went to go vote, uh, an old woman who, because my oh, voting station is in the building of one of those like seniors' residences. So of course, when I went to. When I went to go vote, this older woman passed me and was like, did you vote? And I was like, yes. And she was like, you don't look old enough to vote. And I was like, then why did you ask? <laughs> why did you want to know that? So when people see me, they think I'm like 16, 17 years old, um, especially in the summer when I'm just like in shorts and whatever. And, and I'm also like 4'11". For anyone who's never seen me, I'm incredibly short, so everyone assumes, like, no matter what I look like in the face, they're like, yeah. you're 12. They're like... I've seen you. I didn't know you. I never knew you were that short. 10 years old, 4'11", 6. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm incredibly tiny. But, that's fine. Yeah, so... Um, so yeah, basically... The the most difficult thing for me was that David would be 18 this year, um, this month, actually, because so his birthday young. was, no, it was uh, not July, but April. Mm-hmm. It, so April of this year, he would have been 18 years old. And if he was still alive, he probably would have led a similar life um, to what I've led in terms of disabilities. Yeah. Um, you know... Where, you know, his walking would have been impacted somewhat, but not completely. He probably might need to use medical supplies to go to the bathroom. You know, all of those things. But, like, at the end of the day, he would have been finishing up high school. I mean, people with spina bifida, our life expectancies are no different yeah. from people without spina bifida. It's it's really sad like, not that the loss of life isn't sad for everyone, but it's really sad when especially young people, children, babies, you know, we had an infant, you had a two-year-old and a five-year-old. Like, two-year-olds are just old enough to, like, kind of understand what the heck is going on. Like, I don't know if you've ever spent time with a two-year-old, but I have, so I basically raised my nephew for a good chunk of years. But, like, that's a that's very scary to think that, like, like, their own father 
decided he was just gonna shoot his five-year-old and his two-year-old and his his infant. Yeah. I believe that's all of them? Seven. Seven-year-old, sorry. And a seven-year-old, a seven-year-old definitely would have known what was going on, for sure. Like, don't underestimate kids. Kids are smart. Daniel would have been our age. Yeah. Daniel would be our age right now. Yeah. We, we might have even met him if he lived because, you know, how many people come to U of T from, from Kitchener? Like, how many people do we know from yeah. Kitchener-Waterloo area? Like, yeah. everyone eventually migrates to Toronto at some point. Like, we probably would have met these people. I, he, David probably would have gone to, like, Holland Bloorview, mm-hmm. like I did. Well, it wasn't called that then. Yeah. It was but, called... You know, uh, Blurview McMillan for a that's while. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, but apparently, so I met someone um, who also um, went there. But back when it was like, like first opened, apparently it was called the Center for Crippled Children. Yeah, oh back in the day. So. That's fun history about the medical community uh, so in Toronto. <laughs> um, yeah, like, um, like we, like I probably would have like met him there. Yeah, it's just it, and this goes for both cases. It's just so upsetting to see that you know these people, these men, decided that they had more authority and more agency over other people's lives, specifically their families' lives. Like, you, just because a person may be disabled, just because a person is a child, just because a person is a woman, a different color, than whatever, you don't get to decide because you don't want to do it anymore or you don't like them just to end their life like that. Yeah. That's not no, up to you. it isn't you. up to you. Yeah, so that's my case. <sighs> Just like deep, <laughs> first deep internal sigh and then external deep sighs. It's always like very, <laughs> very not necessarily stressful, but um, emotionally, emotionally draining. Taxing. Like I didn't even have to do a, to, to do a research a case this week, but I read briefly on your case and Mari's case. And like just having to sit down and listen to it all, I'm I still feel like very exhausted from all this. Yeah, and like especially because we both picked cases that hit very close to home for both of us. Yeah, you guys. Did. I mean, you we both picked somebody with where the victims were somebody with the same disabilities as now, us. Was that intentional? Did you both plan to do that or did it just happen that way? No, I didn't. Like, I knew I was picking somebody with my yeah. disability. I didn't know that um, Andrew was doing I wasn't well. going to do the Robert Latimer thing until until it was so prevalent in the news again. And as soon as they saw he wanted mm-hmm. a pardon, I was like, well, I have to do it now. <laughs> like, I have to. Um, but- so this is just... I mean, that's I'm always like, still really so glad you brought that to our attention. That's always yeah. a case that that's a case that will always kind of irk me because it, it could easily happen again. Yeah, I mean, it does. It it like did like um, this case happened. Um, how many years later? Like seven years later. Yeah, and thing is though, it thing is like we live in ice as. I've said this at least twice on this podcast. The world is so big, so much is going on. It could be happening right now. It probably happened in the past and no one even knew it happened. 
like how many cases are just not being talked about because so many people think oh that's just a parent doing what was best for everyone yeah, yeah or like they no, and no one ever found out about it they got away with it like there mm-hmm. it's just yeah like if they didn't find the carbon monoxide levels in tracy if they didn't do an autopsy what if you know say their their child or whoever they were taking care of was someone who was homebound so other people wouldn't even notice anything was amiss i think homebound's a not good word oh right you told me about this too yeah uh, what was the alternative um i think I don't know if there's a an alternative for like someone who couldn't leave their house like on their own like yeah. Andrew, do you uh, know? Do you I know? Mean, I think the <laughs> alternative is, and you cut out a bit there. So can you repeat the question so I have it all the whole thing? Oh, okay. <laughs> what would be an alternative? Like a good alternative? A uh for someone who is uh who can't leave their home. I do. As opposed to homebound. Um, that's a good one. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Because I want to say homebound, but that's not... I, I would say a person who is home attached. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's... that's- it's difficult because I think what it is is that it's not necessarily about their condition it's more about the environment around them being Mm -hmm. inaccessible so for example the reason that we couldn't record with andrew in the room yeah is because i live in very inaccessible housing yeah um so i live in a fourth floor walk-up yes you do which is fun i (laughs) so my solution to that is to just never leave my house yeah as much as possible i stay indoors which really sucks because i don't have a balcony or even like a huge window it's 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 there my view (laughs) out my window is another building yeah like the like it's like window like i want to say a five by five foot window maybe and then like brick wall five by five i don't know it's like a little bit it's like about my height i'm five foot five so like five I mean, maybe not five foot. Anyway, it's not important. Point <laughs> is, it's not the biggest window. It's not the smallest window, and the view is just a wall. my neighbors. Yeah, I can actually look into my neighbor's living room. Um, they have proceeded to just keep their blinds closed yeah. permanently. So, and I understand why like homebound is not a good term because it, it insinuates that like being at home is like your choice to be confined to. Yeah, your surroundings. I think. I think maybe we should like do more research, or at least I should do more research on an alternative term, or we should. I think it's just a different way of talking about it. Is, yeah. Um. So it just like for people who don't live in accessible housing. Yeah. Or people who can't leave their house that often. Well, sometimes it's it, just like in a, a sense mouth. where someone is so uninformed or overwhelmed by their having to take care of someone else that they refuse to take them out let them become part of society that's what be my homebound so if someone so it's more like it's more the role of the care the caretaker is essentially almost holding them hostage in a sense Mm -hmm. which i think is a better way of putting it because they're in control of 
where they go and what they do. I imagine there are a lot of situations where a lot of people can't leave their house because of their caretaker or family members or whoever. Oh yeah, will not a huge issue with oh, abuse. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, in relationships with disabled people, like yeah. relationships, family members, um, like I don't remember the exact statistic, mm-hmm. but disabled women are, um, and I'm using the term "woman" very loosely here. Yeah. Um, are like way more likely to be in an abusive relationship um, than their non-disabled counterparts because um, the the whole tower dynamic of of partner and caretaker yeah. and all of these things. So, like I met as you mentioned, it probably it not probably it definitely happens a lot where these people have no choice but to stay in their house because no one is helping to them to access the outside world. So neighbors would never know if something like that were to happen, if their caretaker was to decide that, you know what, it's time to end things and it goes undocumented, like no one hears about it. And like, we only hear about a few cases. I'm talking about all the unknown cases where the person was basically a hostage in their own home. Mm-hmm. I, I bet there's tons of cases. And so there definitely needs to be, I don't know what can be done to make people more aware more rapidly um, about what's going on, but obviously there's definitely needs to be a change and more awareness and more education. And the realization that we're all ableist at the end, like, let's start there. Let's start with that. Yes. Yep. Yeah. I mean, even within the disabled community, you face ableism. Like, lateral ableism is a thing. Internalized ableism mm-hmm. is a thing. Like, it's a, it's a thing that we all have to unlearn and, and teach ourselves to be better about. Mm-hmm. Yep. You're never too old to learn. Never stop learning. And you're never too fun. old to be an ableist. <laughs> no. Well, you're never told to be anything. Yeah. Other than young. <laughs> <laughs> You're young at heart, though. Um, so, yeah. Any, any other things you'd like to add to? Um, would you like to uh, plug yourself, Andrew? Sure, I can do that. Um, awesome. You can find my work at www.andrewgerza.com. Uh, that's where you can hire me to do I do talks around the lived experience of disability, sexuality um, queerness mm-hmm. that kind of stuff you can listen to my podcast Disability After Dark on highly recommend right thank you oh so nice <laughs> we, we had so much fun Just on our, on our episode we had good times um, yeah um, on you can you can follow download that on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and now Spotify. Yay! Um, Spotify takes for... F- we haven't made it there yet. Moving on up. <laughs> forever to get Spotify to like realize that you're a show. It takes forever. But I got it. So I was happy about that. So um, you can also... I You can also... What else do I do? You can also... Um, Twitter. Yeah, Twitter. Facebook. Twitter. That's right. So... Twitter. On my okay. social media, I'm Andrew Gerza everywhere. Um, 
You also have the Disability After Dark Twitter, which is, I think, that's right. Disability It's Disaft Dark Pod on the Twitter. But you can, if you find me, then then I can connect you to that one right away. Like I'm on that one just for the podcast. The Andrew Gerzel one is more entertaining and more like fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the opposite of mine. <laughs> I did all the fun stuff on my Six Sad World Twitter, and now my regular Twitter is so boring. Please tell me that Six Sad World was a Daria reference. Yes, it is. Amazing. You know how happy they are that you got that reference. I'm so happy. So. The amount of times they're like, oh, I wish you got it, Jasmine. I wish you understood. And I'm like, okay. Jasmine's cool. not as big of a Daria fan as I am. I didn't grow up watching it's Daria. It's coming I, back, I, I, though, soon. It is. I heard. I'm so excited. I hope they don't ruin it. They'll probably, they'll probably ruin it. <laughs> well, if the Teen Titans trailer was any indication oh, no. of what, how much they can ruin your childhood, you it's know. While probably, I was eating it'll lunch, probably be destroyed. Jasmine was... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Jasmine was showing me trailers over lunch of of, of uh, upcoming movies and TV shows, yes. and um, one of them included the new Teen Titan live action series. Yeah, it's really bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I'm not gonna tell you not to watch it. I am, <laughs> but um, it looks it looks straight up like garbage. I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry. It looked garbage. That's, I'm just, they that's ruined just, my favorite no, no. character, which is Raven, who is like goth girl icon. Yep. Like Daria-esque. Very Daria-esque, like very deadpan voice the entire time. Yeah. Likes dark and creepy things. Yes. But like, isn't like angsty emo kid. No. It's just like Daria. Yeah. And the, the live action TV series turned her into this like angsty emo girl and i'm so upset because i just want my goth girl raven right i mean we still have our childhood take away my goth role models (laughs) so um since you're our guest on our podcast do you want to do our closing um catchphrase which is don't be a murderer tell me again our closing um, catchphrase. I don't know if we call it a catchphrase. I don't know. What it's I don't, yeah, it's like our closing tagline. I guess. Yeah, is we say, "Don't be a murderer," because being a murderer is the choice. Oh. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, my name is Andrew Gerza, and this has been Six Sad World. Don't be a murderer. Murderer. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs>